Well, I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We return now to this book that we have been going through since the beginning of last year. And the book of 1 Corinthians and our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 7 of chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul begins a new section here on the subject of spiritual gifts from chapters 12 through 14. He addresses a new issue. That has been very chaotic in the Corinthian church. We look at verses 1 through 7 in our scripture reading this morning of the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. It reads, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware... You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make it known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministry and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we come to study this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before your word asking that you would speak to us and that you, Father, would grant to us insight. Fill us with your spirit, illumine our minds, grant to us understanding that we might hear and know you, that our love for you might grow, our understanding of your word might deepen, that, Father, we would be conformed more in the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. And there's a book entitled The Gospel According to Starbucks in which Leonard Sweet, he tells the story of a man named Ed Falbert. And Ed Falbert was what you would call a cupper. In layman's terms, it means a coffee taste tester. And his taste buds are so well honed, it says in this book that he is certified by the state of New York. Well, he's defined his sense of taste buds so well that even when he is blindfolded and he tastes various kinds of coffee, he can tell you, quote, not just that it was from Guatemala, but from what state it was from, at what altitude it was grown, and on what mountain, unquote. Now, that's something to see, I'm sure. I drink coffee. The only thing I can tell you is whether it needs more cream and sugar. And to me, why buy a lighter blend when I can just add less coffee grounds and put in more water? I mean, when I started making coffee, I thought to myself, this stuff is so black, why just need to use two scoops for a whole half a pot? I wondered and I asked my sister-in-law, I don't know why my coffee turns out kind of watery. I thought it was more like tea. A little pinch in a pot makes a whole pot of tea. I'm not a cupper. Because I don't have discerning taste buds. I cannot differentiate. Joseph Stoll writes in his book, Flan the Flame, he says, Discernment 
And scripture is the skill that enables us to differentiate. It's the ability to see issues clearly. We desperately need to cultivate this spiritual skill that will enable us to know right from wrong. We must be prepared to distinguish light from darkness, truth from error, best from better, righteousness from unrighteousness, purity from defilement, and principles from pragmatics. Discernment is a problem. It's a problem today. It was a problem back then. It's a problem among Christians today. A person who's discerning, who can differentiate right from wrong, needs to be two things, especially. One, they need to know what the truth of the Word of God is. And secondly, they need to be living a spirit-filled life. The first is obvious. If you don't know what is right from what is wrong, you won't be able to discern what is best from what is not good or righteous from unrighteous. You need to have a standard by which you are discerning that which is truth from error. The second, being a person who is walking with God, who may have a lot of knowledge, but because of sin, they may not see things clearly. Their sense of what is wise from unwise, righteous from unrighteous, may be clouded by that sin. It is overridden by that sin and one's view is contorted because of sin in the life of an individual. What is true about discernment in general is true when it comes to this as well. The subject of spiritual gifts. Because in chapter 12 here, Paul begins addressing this subject. A new subject in which he has helped them understand and deal with multiple problems within the Corinthian church. We come back to this book after about three or four weeks of the holiday season. We look at how he has addressed various issues throughout the book. He begins in chapter 1 regarding divisions that he has told them that they need to correct. He tells them that they need not to rest on worldly philosophy. He addresses the subject of immorality. He knows that they were suing one another in the church and he says that they should not do that. He addresses singleness in marriage. He addresses the subject of divorce, of Christian liberties, of idolatry, of the role of men and women in the church, of irreverence during communion. All of these problems that they had imported, they had imported worldliness, what they had had in their culture into the church. And in this section of scripture today, he once again turns his attention to that same thing, another subject that is causing some chaos within the church where they've adopted some of the worldly philosophy into the church. And this particular subject, as we look at this subject for the next three weeks or so, the subject, or more I should say, is very relevant. It is very practical. It's a subject that has dealt with a lot of confusion, division even in the church today. Because in this subject there has been a spectrum of convictions when it comes to the subject of spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And because there are ones that maybe are more visible and outward manifestation and the end of one's view from one end to the other can run the gamut. There are those that who believe that all of the gifts still continue on today. The prophetic gifts, the sign gifts, gifts of miracles, the specific gifts of healing or tongues, all the way to the other end, which some believe that they have ceased and ceased forever. And then there are those who are in between, 
temporal ceasing, etc., that will reoccur in the millennial kingdom and those who have believed that they have ceased for a period of time, but now in the latter days they continue on. Various views of spiritual gifts have come to the forefront even in the last, especially in the last 50 to 100 years. Because of this, there are various Christians who avoid the subject altogether because they simply don't want to cause trouble or division or discord within the church. Spiritual gifts, though, are extremely important. They're important to the life, to the edification, to the building up of the body because they are critical. God uses our gifts, spiritual gifts, in order to build up the body for the benefit of others within the church. But just as there are confusion Today, there was confusion back then. In fact, it might have even been more confusing in the Corinthian church. As we saw earlier in this letter, they had not only adopted, they had not only adopted some of the philosophy of the world and how they dealt with various church issues back in the time of Corinth, but they had adopted some worldly pagan beliefs as well. There was a carryover from their idolatrous life into their Christian life. I remember that's how it is many times when Christians don't know the Word of God or they're young Christians. When I was in Uganda last summer, one of the problems, or I should say the summer ago, one of the problems was that some pastors had told their people, and these were pastors of the church back then, they told their people when they came to things that were in the Scriptures, they were good, they ought to follow them. When they had health problems, they ought to run to God. But it was also told to them by the same pastor that it's all right to go and consult your local witch doctor as well. They had a carryover of some of their old beliefs into the church that needed to be corrected. Immoral pagan religion, just as it is in some parts of the world today, was a part of that culture. It's important to understand some of the background of the city of Corinth in order to understand some of the confusion that was happening. Corinth was a capital city. As I shared with you in the introduction when we first came to this book, it was a capital city. And in the middle of that city, there was an acropolis that rose some 2,000 feet in the air. It was both for defense as well as for worship. Because on the top of that acropolis, there was the temple the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And that Greek goddess, as part of their religion that they promoted in that city, had a thousand prostitutes who would come down each night and ply their trade among the men who would come in. Because Corinth was in an area in which was great commerce that would come through. Roads would come in and out. There would be travelers through the day and they would spend the night. Men of the city who would live there. And it was an extremely immoral city. Fornication was running rampant, prostitution, idolatry, debauchery, drunkenness. It permeated the city so much so and the worldly philosophy simply inundated the church. It was known that if you were called a Corinthian, called a Corinthianized individual, it was that which was an immoral individual. It was used as a word related to somebody who was very immoral. So Paul begins to instruct these Corinthians on the subject of spiritual gifts and encourage them to be discerning in the context of this immorality. And so here he gives them instruction, he gives them correction for what they had thought. And we'll see how this feeds into the culture of that day. 
But he tells them that the first thing they need is they need to be discerning when it comes to spiritual gifts. For he says in verse 1, Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Now, as I shared with you, they came out of a very immoral culture, steeped in paganism. The religious beliefs of the ancient world in Greece and Rome were sometimes called the mystery religions, quote-unquote. They had been a part of that Eastern world for thousands of years, the mystery religions had. And we see in the scriptures how false religion first came about, organized false religion. When we look at how it all came about, perhaps the first example of organized false religion, rebellion against God as an organized group, came in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, from which Babylon gets his name. In verse 4 of Genesis 11, they all gathered together and they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. And a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will scatter, be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to reach heaven. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And the leadership of that particular group was under one man whose name was Nimrod. And as you know the story of the Tower of Babel, God sees this and He confuses their language such that their inability to work together and they scatter about. But Nimrod's wife, her name was Semiramis the first. She apparently was the high priestess of the Babel religion and the founder of all mystery religions because when people scattered, they took their false beliefs with them. God had confused their language and scattered them. But you find that her name is just simply transformed into other names. She was deified later into the god of Syria named Ishtar, the god of Egypt named Isis, or Aphrodite of Greece, or Venus in Rome. And every time she was the goddess of love and fertility, she had a son named Tammuz, who was also deified and is a consort of Ishtar, the god of the underworld. And we know his name by the name of Baal in Phoenicia. Those who were part of the Egyptian religion saw his name as Osiris or Eros in Greece or Cupid in Rome. You know many of these names, I'm sure, if you've ever read any mythology. So the mystery religions was a source of many of the fictitious gods of the ancient world. In addition to that, there were many of the beliefs and carryover from those mystery religions that people even today have adopted. The idea of baptismal regeneration. The idea that somebody needs to be baptized in order to have salvation came out of the mystery religions. Or the practice, the early practice of flagellation or mutilation or pilgrimages all stem from the mystery religions. All acts of penance in which people believe that if I hurt myself, cut myself, beat myself, I will have sustained punishment enough to outweigh the sins that I have committed and thus gain righteous or eternal life of some type. To atone for one's sin. All of these ideas came out of the mystery religions of the ancient world. And some of those false cultic practices even made it into the city of Corinth. 
One of those cultic practices was called ecstasy. Ecstasy was considered the highest form of religious experience in that day. And it was the kind of belief in which one would dance in a frenzy and hypnotic chants with ceremonies, euphoric feelings, with vigils and fasting, with drunkenness, rituals, with fragrant incense, wildly spinning about until they had a trance-like altered state of mind and body known as ecstasy. And in that they felt that they would commune with the gods. Another form of mystical experience in addition to ecstasy was called enthusiasm, in which we use that word in a different sense. They used it in the sense of involving some sort of mantra-like formula, some sort of divination, dreams, vision, mesmerizing state of mind. All of this stuff really was a part of that culture, part of the cultic religions of which the Corinthians were very familiar with. So what does it have to do with that? It has to do with the fact that they had adopted some of these ideas, some of these ideas, ecstatic utterances, spiritualization of things into the church. They had accepted it. And that is the backdrop of here. And you know, Pfeff Bruce in his book, in his commentary in the book of First and Second Corinthians writes, quote, In classical Greek literature, Apollo was particularly renowned as a source of ecstatic utterances, as on the lips of Cassandra of Troy, the priestess of Delphi, or Sybil of Cumae, whose frenzy as she prophesied under the gods' control is vividly described by Virgil. At a humbler level, the fortune-telling slave girl of Acts 16.16 was dominated by the same kind of pythonic spirit. So, here the Corinthian church was struggling. People would come out of these cults, they would come out of these mystery religions, they would come out of these beliefs that they had held to, these practices, perhaps their friends or perhaps their co-workers or even family were still practicing some of these things. And it is not surprising... It is not surprising that when the spiritual gifts were shown in the city or in the church at Corinth, there was confusion. They were not discerning. Now Paul says here, I don't want you to be unaware. You know when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. When you were pagans... That's a term that had to do with basically those who were unbelievers, those that didn't know God. It was a term initially referring to those who lived out in the, in the suburban areas, out in the countryside. Christianity had begun within the urban cities. And within the urban cities, Christianity flourished. But those who were out in the outskirts, who were also known as pagans, they were known as individuals who were not believers. And so it began to adopt that name or that meaning along with the name. Paul basically says, don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant when the day when you were led astray, you were led astray to mute and dumb idols. You see, before a person becomes a believer in Christ, they were led around. Before a person knows who God is and receives the Lord Jesus as a Savior, they're in bondage to sin. And they were led astray. They didn't have a choice. They didn't have a choice to do that which was God-honoring as they were led to dumb idols. Idols that couldn't speak. Idols that couldn't say anything or, or walk. But now... 
Paul says to us as well as to them, what? Don't be taken in. Don't be deceived. Don't be duped. Why? Or how? He says, by what is said about Jesus Christ. Be discerning when it comes to things that are said about Jesus Christ. And here's the test, verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord by the Holy Spirit. You see, there would be people who would come into the church that would claim to be speaking from God. And yet, they would denigrate or slander or condemn the person and work of Jesus Christ. The word to be what? That Jesus is accursed. The word accursed is the word that we get the word anathema from. That is the Greek word. And it means a severe condemnation. A severe condemnation. Anyone who comes and says that they're speaking from God, that this is God's word, and yet condemns or denigrates or slanders Christ is not from God. Now, you may think that's rather obvious. You may think, I, I'd never listen to somebody like that. Fascinating what people will believe, though. Bob Hunter wrote in a 2007 article entitled, Christianity Still in Crisis? Question mark writes this. Creflo Dollar is the founder of a nearly 24,000 member World Changers Church International in College Park, Georgia. Creflo Dollar is typical. Teachers who redefine and recreate God in man's image. He teaches that, quote, Jesus didn't come from God. He came as a man. He did not come perfect, unquote. Realizing how controversial the statement is, he then adds, quote, How many of you know that the Bible says God never sleeps nor slumbers? And yet, in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. This ain't no heresy. I'm not some false prophet. I'm just reading this thing to you out of the Bible, unquote. Now, people can easily think, that makes sense. That makes sense. God doesn't sleep or slumber, but there Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. How could Jesus be God? Every year during Easter even, some people watch television more. The media seems to promote something about the historical Jesus. In 2007, the Discovery Channel recently aired, quote, The Lost Tomb of Jesus. It was a documentary about ten ossuaries. Ossuaries are, are what are known as bone boxes in which they would take the bones of somebody who had passed away and put them in a box, yea, large or so, made of stone. And archaeologists had discovered this south of Jerusalem. And the documentary claims that originally it contained the bones of Jesus, including his mother, his wife, his son, and other relatives. Discovery Channel's website, when I looked at it yesterday or the day before, says that such discoveries of this are compatible with the Bible. And that the ascension of Jesus into heaven wasn't physical, it was a spiritual ascension. So, you should have no problem. It's consistent with Christian theology. But they are inconsistent with the words of Scripture, which tells us of His physical, bodily resurrection and ascension, and His deity. His deity is often the subject of attack. 
When Paul says, one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is a curse, you don't, don't be taken in. Don't be taken in by someone who would say those things. Because the Scriptures tell us that Jesus is God. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Don't be taken in. Don't be taken in. Many people who are not discerning, who don't listen carefully, are easily taken in. Thousands and thousands of people are taken in by false ideas and false doctrine. On the flip side of coin, Paul says what? No one can just say, Jesus is Lord. Remember the Corinthians were immersed in a culture where ecstatic utterances, whether it was from Apollo's God or whoever it might have been, uh, had spiritual speech. They were part of the culture of that time, things that people would say. The reference is not merely saying or mouthing the words, as you can imagine. You wouldn't take this and say, well, somebody who can say it must be simply filled by the Spirit of God. It's referring to those who would be genuine or those who would be sincere in saying of that phrase. Because the understanding of a speaker who says Jesus is Lord understands or says that which is about in reference to the lordship and the sovereignty of the deity of Christ, of Jesus Christ. The idea behind the word Lord implies sovereign deity. The Greek word of kurios in the New Testament, which this word Lord comes from, has its counterpart and equivalent of Adonai in the Old Testament. Adonai was the term of highest regard for someone of honor. It would be even higher than when we come into a courtroom and we call that person who sits behind the bench your honor. Because we recognize that they are the ones who will make a decision as a judge who has full control over that courtroom. The covenant name of God in the Old Testament was held in such high regard and reverence that they would not even speak the covenant name of God. Maybe you've seen it or read it indicated by the letters Y-H-W-H or Yahweh. They would use vowel pointings along those Hebrew characters. And those vowel pointings they would pronounce as Adonai. In fact, when the scribes wrote the name of God, or when the scribes were copying the Old Testament manuscripts, they were meticulous and diligent. In Biblical Research Center, one of the authors writes about the work of the scribes. He would say, before he began his work each day, the scribe would test his reed pen by dipping it in ink and writing the name of Amalek and then crossing it out. Deuteronomy 25:19. Then he would say, I am writing the Torah in the name of its sanctity and the name of Adonai in its sanctity. The scribe would read a sentence in the manuscript he was copying, repeat it out loud, and then write it again, or and then write it. Each time he came to the name of God, he would say, I'm writing the name of Adonai for the holiness of his name. 
If he made an error in writing Adonai's name, he would destroy the entire sheet of papyrus or vellum that he was using. It's similar to see when we see God's name in Scripture. You can tell when it is written in that covenant name in Genesis chapter 1 versus Genesis chapter 2. You notice in Genesis chapter 2, it writes the Lord God, the Lord God. But in Genesis chapter 1, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When it says God, it is the word Elohim, meaning the transcendent God, the God, the creator of heaven and earth. And in chapter 2, it is about Adonai, a very personal God. And here he speaks of the creation of man in a very imminent way. That God is a God who is close, as well as a God who is transcendent above all gods, above all the earth. And in the early church, this word, kurios, meaning Lord, soon became exclusively used in reference to God himself. So the confession that Jesus is Lord is the same as confessing Jesus as God, the supreme ruler and authority. It's the same idea in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Many of you know that verse that says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? That one is God who has sovereign authority over one's life. In other words, to call Jesus Lord was to give one's rights over your life to Him. A person is not speaking for God, will not lift up Christ and recognize where God, where Jesus is from. From God, the Son of God. So what Paul is basically saying is what? If somebody is from God, they will not speak against Christ, they will not denigrate Christ, but they will declare Him to be the sovereign God. And that's the principle that we have here. That's the principle that's laid out for here. And you know what? Many false religions today, many false beliefs today, will attack two particular areas when it comes to cults. You can tell easily. How do you know when somebody knocks at your door? How do you know whether or not they're a Christian or whether or not they believe in the faith that God has given to us in the Scriptures? They attack two particular areas. One is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Often his deity and his resurrection. The person and work of Jesus Christ is always a point of attack. And secondly, the authority, the sole authority and sufficiency of the Word of God. They will often attack those two areas of doctrine in undermining a Christian's faith. Jesus Christ and the Scriptures. For example, a Jehovah Witness will say that Jesus is the Archangel Michael in the flesh. Or a Mormon will say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. I remember many years ago when I was a boy, I didn't watch much TV and we didn't watch the show, but I, for some reason, had flipped through the channels on some day as a, as a teenager and I remember watching part of the Phil Donahue show. Those of you who are older know who he was. He was this very liberal talk show host that would have all sorts of strange individuals that he would invite as guests. And I remember back in the, I don't know what it was, maybe the 80s or so, when channelers were all over the news. 
And a channeler was part of the New Age movement. All these New Age philosophies had come in and, you know, there was big news about, you know, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh Puram who's ended up in Oregon for a while, etc. He had invited this channeler, this New Age channeler on the show. And I watched as this individual, and a channeler is nothing more, nothing more than a person who becomes possessed by a spirit of evil, by an evil spirit, I should say, a demonic spirit. And I watched as this person, they asked this person who was a normal person, who was a channeler, get on this stage on national television and watch them as they lowered their head. They went into a trance-like state. You waited a moment and when they raised their head, they began seemingly having a personality that was entirely changed. They began speaking in a voice that was not their own. You could tell their voice and their speech was smooth and speaking all sorts of spiritual things, spouting out so-called wisdom. And there was a man, because Phil would go out in the crowd and he would, he would uh, take the microphone around, you know, and ask people to take questions from the crowd. And there was a man there who stood up, and I remember he was applying First John 4. I remember knowing the passage, and he said that, you know what? The passage in First John 4, verses 1 through 3, says what? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. And here this man explicitly quotes this passage and asks this particular channeler who is now possessed on national television to confess that Jesus is from God because this channeler was proclaiming that they were from God, that they were speaking from a divine viewpoint. And it was fascinating listening as a kid to what this channeler was saying. The channeler began to talk about how Jesus was a good person, how He'd come to help many people, how He had done a number of good things, never confessing that Jesus was from God, avoiding the question. And that's what false teachers, false spirits, false religions will do. They will attack the person, whether it be outwardly, explicitly, or by avoiding it altogether. Commentator Gordon Fee writes, quote, The ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in and of itself. Paul's concern, you see, for the Corinthians is that they would not be taken in. They were to be discerning. They were to be thinking. They were to be people who would discern if somebody was speaking from God or not. Because that person would point to Christ. The use of their gifts would point to Jesus, not to themselves. It wasn't about them attracting attention to themselves. It wasn't about promoting themselves or their own personal feelings or whatever it might be. It would be about Christ. 
And they would point to Christ and lift Christ up. And just as in the church today, just as in the past, there is a necessity to be discerning. When a person has a spiritual gift, that gift is to be exercised to lift up Christ. Not a wholesale acceptance of whatever supernatural thing that might come. And the warning for us as we come through this passage is not to be gullible, not to be taken in. Because I've known many people, I've known many people who would believe that they know what is true. They would say to themselves, I'm a discerning person, I can tell, I can understand, but I listen to some of the things that they say. They come into the latest fad from a seminar. They read a new book that seems to be hot on the bestseller list. There is somebody that they heard on the radio, but they're undiscerning as to what is true, what is consistent with the Word of God. And the way we become discerning people is through the study of the Word of God, to hone one's skills. For Hebrews 15 or 5.14 reminds us, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid food in the Word of God and practice help us to understand and discern what is right from wrong, good from evil. So we need to be discerning people, to train ourselves in the study of the Word of God, that it might protect us as a church protect you from living the wrong way, protect your family, and cause all of us to grow in the grace of Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we embark on this study of the gifts of the Spirit that you have given to each and every individual who is your child, we pray, Father, that we would be discerning Grant to us, Father, in the weeks to come, understanding. And help us, Father, not to be taken in by every teaching that comes along. Help us, Father, to continue to desire, Lord, to study and learn and grow deep in your word. That we might live according to it and have our senses trained. That we might not be led astray. In Jesus' name, amen.